Welcome to the fourth instalment of Guido Talks. It's just like last week's, except all of our hairs a little bit longer and the stories are that little bit newer. Don't forget that if you prefer to see us um, or prefer to listen to us rather than see us, you can check out Guido Talks as a podcast. Find out how at orderorder.com. I'm Tom Harwood and I'm yet again joined by Guido Fawkes founder and editor Paul Staines and reporter Christian Kaugi. You're watching or listening to Guido Talks, the weekly roundup of all things Guido. So let's kick off this week with the news that Harry Cole, the deputy political editor of the Mail on Sunday and formerly of this parish, has bagged one of the best jobs in political journalism. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Paul? Well, for quite some time, the current, well, let's talk about the job first. Being political editor of The Sun, which is the biggest selling newspaper, daily newspaper in Britain, is quite a serious political job. And I know people think, you know, that the BBC political editor is probably the most powerful and the apex of who hears what and telling people what to think. But after that, I think The Sun has traditionally been seen as uh, incredibly influential. So. Everyone knew that Tom Newton was on his way out and that he wanted to get a broadcasting job. And uh, we wish him well at the Radio Times, uh, Times Radio, sorry. Um, and it, who was going to get that job? Well, Harry had uh, originally worked on the Guido column in The Sun, um, oh my God, this is uh, seven years ago. And from that, they liked the column so much that they actually poached him from here. And he was the Whitehall correspondent at uh, The Sun. From there, he hopped over to um, the Mail on Sunday. And he has always been penciled in as a possible uh, inheritor of that position. And so, you know, great journalists who held that job. George Pascoe Watson, Trevor Kavner, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's an important job because it reaches out to that key swing demographic of some regions. And, you know, it's no bad thing to be um, close to Rupert Murdoch, who always takes an interest in what the sun um, has to say to the British people. It's a, it's a big place in his heart. Good luck with uh, the job, <laughs> Harry. It's a tough one. Right. That's, uh, that's I guess that story in a nutshell, but um, moving on from the sort of media navel-gazing for a moment, um, this week's Prime Minister's questions were um, kicked off quite a bit of controversy. Uh, Can you talk us through it, Kaugi? Yeah, uh, typical uh, PMQ Starmer doing his usual, uh, uh, you know, shtick. Uh, The word forensic comes up fairly often these days. (laughs) Uh, and uh, during PMQs, the Labour Party have miraculously discovered this ability to do some semi-decent comms work. And Starmer is doing his thing, sits down, and immediately the Labour Party are out with a correction, which was that Starmer put to Boris uh, the official Public Health England guidance for care homes that was issued and uh, was in place until the 12th of March, and Boris denied that that was the official guidance. Unfortunately for the government, that was the official guidance. Um, they they tried fudging an excuse, which I don't think um, held much uh, water, 
and uh, Boris managed to avoid a humiliating apology in the House. Um, but it's uh, another proof that, you know, the Labour Party now is, is a very different kettle of fish to the one we've grown used to. And indeed, I guess some aspects of the Tory party have become quite relaxed about. And Boris and the CCHQ and the number 10 operation need to make sure they're on top of the detail in future when confronting Starmer on these things. Well, well, I think yeah. there was some ambiguity around the guidance, um, just for to um, to not give Keir Starmer and his team all of the bells and whistles. It did it did seem that that guidance was only in place for if there were uh, if there weren't any coronavirus cases or if it wasn't prevalent. There was some ambiguity there, and the waters got very very muddied towards the end of that day. So it well, didn't Downing, really Downing go much further. Stuck to their guns, stuck to their guns, and in the Huddle afterwards, they insisted that, you know, Starmer got it wrong. We hadn't seen the disclaimer, which basically said this advice is valid now while there's no coronavirus in circulation. But there's a, mm. there's a argument about what day that advice changed. When did that disclaimer get put in? It's a process story that most people will pass it by. If, if Boris had been forced to make an apology, of course, that would have... Um, uh, being noticeable, but I think they've done enough to muddy the waters that there won't be one. But the whole uh, rapid reaction from Labour, we haven't seen this for quite a while. Uh, mm. I mean, with Miliband and Corbyn, you know, both Cameron and uh, Boris could just wander in and knock it out of the park because it was pretty easy. You could do it on the fly, you didn't have to really do much work, particularly with Corbyn, who had a terrible knack of addressing a Labour Party rally and hectoring and you know that tone he had and, and managing to ask last week's questions the week <laughs> after they needed asking and, and being completely incapable of thinking on his feet as well you know if Boris gave an answer he would just plow on with his next scripted Seamus Milne ventriloquist act you know and it wasn't very good as you'd expect from a former uh, barrister there's a manner about Starmer, which I think they'll find difficult over the coming years. You know, Starmer isn't trying to win immediately. It's nice to win a headline now and then. He's building up a case against Boris. And the case against Boris, I think, is going to be, or the, the, the Starmer's going to try and create, is that there wasn't a degree of competency. So they don't want to attack the government right now head on because we're in a crisis and that won't be popular. It'll be seen as disloyal. But in the future, they'll want to go back and say, did they do it right? Did they do the best they could? And obviously, as we can see, nobody in the world is having the perfect response. I do think we are getting a bit too tied down in the ins and outs of Prime Minister's questions, though. All of political commentary seems to think this is the be-all and end-all and seems to forget that uh, William Hague, week in, week out, would defeat Tony Blair at Prime Minister's questions, would always be more forensic, would always get those zingers in. But at the end of the day, did it really turn into electoral gains? Not so much. So I think there is more that Starmer has to do to prove that he can uh, work to speak to the country and not just the journalists within the House of Commons. Um, and at the end of the day, the scandal has overshadowed the bigger issue, which is why did Public Health England not issue new guidance for such a long time after 
the status of coronavirus in this country had changed after they'd set the original guidance. And the question has to be, why did the experts not react quickly enough in advising new guidance? Now, it's amazing that we're talking so much about what's going on in the House of Commons, because only 50 MPs are allowed inside the chamber at any one time. It's a massively stripped back thing, but it does seem to be right back at the heart of our politics, because another big story this week was the attempted rebellion on the agriculture bill. Now, this was a, a sort of rump of uh, Remain voting MPs in Parliament who attempted to pass several amendments which would have massively restricted the UK's ability to conduct free trade agreements with other countries uh, overseas. And actually, it was it was so poorly worded, or, or perhaps the MPs who were tabling it didn't really understand what they were saying, that it, it could have prevented the UK actually doing a deal with the EU, let alone other countries like America um, or, or further afield countries like, like India. Um, the language that was being used in, in presenting this bill was talking about creating a level playing field, but not only a level playing field. Um, I think this is a direct quote. This is not a crypto-communist move to move against capitalism, but it is about trying to create a level playing field. It is not a coercive approach to those who might enter a free trade agreement, but an invitation to meet our standards if they do wish to trade. Now, that's just a misunderstanding of how free trade did mean, agreements work. Do you mean the EU? No, no, no. This is about any country in the world. If they want to import something into Britain, they'd have to meet Britain's standards. Now, that's that's not mutual recognition as free trade agreements are, are, are based on. That's that's talking about that's sort of how trade operates without free trade agreements. This is a deeply uh, regressive protectionist argument that was being made by Remainers in the House of Commons. And it was deeply peculiar to see it get as far as it did. I, I mean, of course, it, when we say that it got as far as it did, uh, that also includes the votes of Chancellor Rishi Sunak and his PPS, <laughs> uh, Claire Contino, um, because of the issues surrounding electronic voting. They, we hope, uh, accidentally, voted for the amendment um, but luckily there were enough MPs who voted against it who were going to vote for it that the speaker when it's not an issue the result was against it as it would have been um, but you know we saw a rather excellent um, perioration from Jacob Rees-Mogg earlier uh, in the middle of the week um, on the problems with the electronic parliament which is why the government are really pushing now um, and again, it's very, it's a very Westminster bubble story, but uh, uh, they're pushing now to get MPs back to normal, get rid of the virtual parliament, get rid of the online voting um, and uh, bring back the proper politics that needs to be there and the proper scrutiny. Yeah, is I, that the I, only I, reason I they're pushing for a return to parliament or is that they want to show that, you know, if people go back to work, parliamentarians should go back to work as well? and you know, should lead from the front. Isn't that uh, an unstated reason? I think that's a large part of it, but also there's, there's the sort of um, worry about having these, uh, stripping away the institutions of Parliament. There are a lot of people on, for example, the Labour benches that don't really think that the House of Commons should exist as it exists today. They want to move it 
to Manchester, say, and have it sit in a in a semicircle like they do in Scotland and continental Europe. They want to sort of strip away all of the um, traditions that make our parliament special. And um, I think there's a there's a big worry within the Tory benches that if this goes on for too long, these sort of digital permanent changes that are really quite buggy will continue on for longer than they should and and i can put you at ease christian i did speak to both rishi's spads and claire cantino and they both did make clear that this was an accidental vote it wasn't just tories who made accidental votes on this one as well um there are a few labor mps who voted the wrong way accidentally because this whole digital system is just not the same as being there in person walking into that lobby that is something that it, it, that really expresses the weight of making law. Making law shouldn't be something that you can do on the fly, on a whim, easily. I think it is very important that MPs do have to sort of physically represent what they're doing, which is changing the constitution of this country with every single law they pass. It's a weighty thing and it should matter more. But talking about changing the constitution of this country, we get on to EU negotiations. Yes, they are still going on at pace. This was the third round concluding this week. And in just uh, the start of next month is when the fourth round starts. So this is incredibly rapidly going on. But we've hit a bit of a roadblock this week with a barnstorming statement from David Frost, the chief UK negotiator who has said that the EU is taking an ideological approach and is not willing to countenance treating the UK like it would any other trading partner. The UK has proposed uh, an agreement that is based on what the EU has signed with South Korea, with Japan, with Canada, with these other third countries, that doesn't mean that the EU is exporting its regulation, that doesn't mean that it traps the other country within its regulatory orbit. And yet the EU is is not willing to countenance that. It wants to treat the UK differently than it does any other normal uh, country. And that is the absolute crux of the disagreement there. And until this hurdle is overcome, there's not going to be very much progress. So we're getting to the point of these talks where the heat is rising, um, where it's where everyone's going to start talking about a no deal exit at the end of December. And really, it's the EU that are going to have to move before there can be an agreement made. I get the sense that um, the EU is... uh, just prodding to see if there's going to be any panic. And I, I get a very strong message from everybody I know in Downing Street who's involved with this, that if the deal isn't right, we're going out with no deal. And they fully signed up for that. So I suspect, and as usual, they might miss the June, is it June 1st deadline for decision-making? They might miss that deadline, but I, I, don't, I don't perceive that uh, Downing Street are going to cave in. So June the 1st is the deadline for the next round of talks. I think it's July that they have but to... But uh, isn't that where you have to have a proposal and if you haven't got... Have I got that wrong? But you're going to have to edit that So out. no, it's uh, not, not June, because June is only two weeks away and, and we're not going to see anything material that's agreed by then. What we are going to see in the next two weeks is the UK are going to publish all of the UK proposals that have been made. Um, and these are obviously unilateral proposals that haven't been signed up to... Uh, from the EU. But the reason why the UK is going to um, publish these 
and publicise them is so that EU member states can see what the UK is proposing, that it's not wild, that it's not out there, that it's all based on precedent. And actually, we might start to see a bit of pressure being applied from EU member states onto the EU Commission. Because at the end of the day, it's the EU member states that, are, that don't want to face barriers to trade to sell across their, their wine or their um, other goods to, to the UK, their cheese, um, their cars. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how much pressure the member states put on the Commission, which is doing the negotiating. Uh, so that's going to come about in the next two weeks. But moving on to the other sort of little stories that we had this week, Calgary, we managed to uh, uh, step into another private Zoom call uh, between senior Labour Party politicians. I'm rather enjoying lockdown because it's far easier to leak from Zoom chats than it is from private face-to-face -face meetings. And we had a, a corker of one uh, this week, which was a, a, a meeting of um, BAME Labour members. Um, we had all of our um, friends of the blog. We had Pfizer Shaheen, Zara Sultana, Clive Lewis, Bel Ribeiro Adi, and a special appearance from Diane Abbott, who um, almost eight years on from the original uh, furore caused by her uh, white people playing divide and rule quote. She repeated it. Uh, now she's been liberated from the front bench and from uh, responsibility of uh, front bench positions uh, and, and said that uh, we need unity between black, Asian, minority, ethnic and Muslim people, uh, notably ignoring the Jewish people there. And uh, we need a public show of unity. And this is, again, uh, you know, these left-wing pockets of Labour are still absolutely obsessed with this leaked report that you know almost everyone else has forgotten about at this point but to them it still remains the absolute pinnacle of uh, what's important in the country at the moment. No it is interesting that she did say sort of that white people love playing divide and rule phrase as if it was sort of something that she often says a sort of repeated refrain it did seem like it was a bit of a soundbite by by her and I wonder if we'd been in lockdown for many years previously how much more we would have been hearing this in these private zoom calls. Um, the other thing I didn't understand about that surely if she's calling for uh, non-white people to unite she's the one calling for division uh, it's, uh, logically no I, don't. I mean it's, <laughs> you'd think what? well moving on anyway we can talk about uh Laura Pidcock, who of course lost her seat in the 2019 general election just six months ago to Conservative Richard Holden in North West Durham. But she has been quietly plotting a return. What's going on, Christian? Uh, well, I was delighted to hear that we uh, may not have heard the last from uh, Laura Pidcock's uh, skyrocketing career. Um, uh, which uh, we have heard from on the ground that there are plans for Miss Pidcock to return as a councillor uh, in uh, the Lanchester ward, which is uh, advertised as a safe labour ward, but we're all too aware of how Laura Pidcock copes with safe labour seats. Uh, and uh, there's expected to be a retirement of a more senior councillor next year. 
and then she can use this as a springboard uh, to fight the seat again in in 2024. And I'm sure that uh, uh, Mr. Richard Holden will only be too delighted to face uh, Laura once again and potentially increase that unexpected majority he got in December. I, I, I miss Pidcock. You know, she she sort she was a fresh fresh noise. You know, she was called the female Richard Bergen, and I think um, you know I don't want to, I don't want to do holding down, but I wouldn't mind seeing a bit more of her. She certainly um, provides a lot of amusement. You know, I don't know. I think there I think there are quite a few younger uh, Labour MPs who are trying to sort of take on that Pidcock mantle. We see the sort of Zara Sultanas. Um, and, and Nadia Whittams of this world, who sort of are trying to be that controversialist um, Twitter celebrity style Labour mm. um, firebrand of the hard left. And, and it's interesting to see which one is going to manage to take the mantle. They seem to swap about each week. I can't see it being good for their career because Starmer's people have really, you know, got the pickaxe out for a lot of those kind of you know, Trotskyites or semi-Trotskyites. They're busy clearing out them from uh, Labour HQ. He really, he didn't go for a balanced cabinet. You know, he shadow cabinet. Mm. He he tilted it right back to um, the centre. But you've got to remember, with so many of these socialist campaign group MPs, they don't see themselves really as part of the Labour family. They see themselves as sort of socialist uh, MPs. And to them, 2019, or at least to some of them, 2019 was a big victory because the number of proper hardcore socialist MPs is the highest it's been for a very long time. So their socialist campaign group within Parliament now has between 30 and 40 members. And so really that's how they sort of view their their party. And to some extent, they, they're not so concerned with the direction of travel of the, of the wider Labour Party. The socialist campaign group is going to be the source of a lot of laughs over the next five years. I don't think that's a controversial prediction to make. Well, talking of laughs and the Labour Party, what a disaster has been going on in Wales over the last two weeks. The Welsh First Minister, Mark Drayford, made a big show of trying to say that, that Wales was going to do it very, very differently, that England was doing completely the wrong thing on the lockdown, and they are going to present a much more sensible, grown-up, more locked-down response. And yet there has been disaster after disaster from the Welsh government over the last uh, seven days. Firstly, what we saw was Mark Drakeford was telling his uh, press conference, his daily coronavirus press conference, the wrong rules. He was talking about rules that are actually the rules in England, not Wales, saying that people can meet their friends if it's just one and if it's outside. That wasn't the, the, the rules in Wales. And yet the person responsible for those rules didn't know what they were which is ironic from a, from a government that is trying to argue that England's rules are confusing and Wales' rules aren't if he gets the Welsh rules wrong and starts citing the English rules. But then more than that, probably much more of a, of, of a real scandal here was the Welsh health minister who broke the rules over the weekend by having a picnic with his family, which you're not allowed to do. That's not essential. You're not allowed to be outside for a picnic. And yet... 
the, the day after he broke those rules, suspiciously, they were changed so that people are allowed to do that. Now, I'm sure it's nothing to do with the case of the health minister breaking those rules that they were changed. The government insists that it was nothing to do with the Welsh health minister breaking those rules that it was changed. But I get the feeling it might just be. Uh, one of the stories of this last week, beginning with Boris's uh, um, TV broadcast on Sunday night, was a divergence between the four nations of the United Kingdom, uh, which of course led to the uh, wonderful news that travel between England and Wales and England and Scotland is now technically against the law, uh, which is something I've been campaigning for for a long time. Uh, on a more serious note, it, we have seen the, uh, particularly Sturgeon and Drakeford, um, pushing this effectively style over substance argument that uh, the policy is very complex and there are similar cock-ups and issues with communication, but the headline for Scotland and Wales is we're not changing uh, anything. And at the same time, they're both criticising the government in England uh, and one of those, uh, one of the criticisms that was fired back this week, and one of the big headline uh, pieces of news was that uh, care home deaths in Scotland are twice that of what they are in England. About forty-two percent uh, of COVID nineteen deaths uh, occur in care homes in Scotland, and it's only twenty-five percent in England. And both those devolved authorities really need to get their own house in order and spend a lot less time uh, showboating and virtue signalling to put blue water between them and Boris Johnson. It's not, it's not just that that's uh, been shown up. I mean, I think we're paying more attention to it to some degree because, you know, the, the autonomy given to them by devolution means we're noticing these differences. But I think uh, there's a dramatic difference in the level of testing going on. Uh, Scotland is bottom on that one and uh, Northern Ireland doing fantastically well for reasons I can't fathom but you know it's a million people and their testing rate is five times uh, what Scotland's is. Uh, Wales is also underperforming on quite a lot of measures. So whilst they're both um, in terms of cases per, per 100,000 Wales is doing much worse. So whilst they're both making out that uh, the English are being reckless, they're not doing any better themselves. They're just, as you said, grandstanding. Uh, and it's starting to get some more coverage. I mean, obviously, we tend, as a Westminster-focused operation, not to pay much go to what's going on in Hollywood and Cardiff. But uh, it, the calibre of people isn't that great. And the Welsh NHS isn't doing very well. And the Scottish NHS doesn't have much to shout about either in comparison to um, uh, English NHS. I think when you do all these uh, international comparisons and home nation comparisons, it kind of gives the lie to what the um, Westminster media bubble is trying to create, which is that there's a particularly incompetent government in Westminster. It's, it's no different from most of the world. It turns out that a global pandemic isn't the easiest thing to deal with for anyone. Uh, who'd have thought it? Well, on that note, uh, thank you to everyone for tuning in uh, to this week's Guido Talks. 
stay safe, stay alert, uh, and we'll see you next time.